0: Hello and welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. My name's Lachlan Fox and I'm an associate at the Grattan Institute. And today we're talking about Australia's big build, or more particularly the unprecedented program of major transport projects, which are being built all around the country. So to assess the big build, I'm delighted to be joined by two Grattan gurus. So first we've got our Transport and Cities Program Director, Marion Terrell. Hi everyone. And we're also joined by Grattan Senior Associate, Owen Emsley. Hi lucky. So Marion and Owen... Evidently, you've just published a fascinating new report calling on Australia's state governments to drive a harder bargain when it comes to contracting these major transport projects. And we'll get into the analysis in that report soon. But first, Marion, we're speaking pretty soon after the federal budget. What's your take on the infrastructure side of the budget this time around?
1: Well, the budget has been very interesting because we had a break last budget from mega projects, but this budget... They're back on again. So the federal government is, is committing at least $2 billion to three major projects and it's also um, co funding a variety of other projects, which, once you take into account the state contribution, are also really big. So it is much more like normal in that regard in that we've in the recent years we have seen a big step up in mega projects, but it's different in the quantum. The quantum is of of what's been committed is very high. So last year was very high, 0.6% of GDP, and this year it's a little higher still. But there's a few caveats to that. One is we know the money doesn't always get spent. So we had a, a $1.7 billion underspend in the most recent uh, actuals that we've seen and and significant underspends in years before that. So there's a pattern of underspends. But the other thing is that there's a, a mismatch between um, what is in the budget as in what's going to be appropriated and what is sort of being announced by ministers in the lead up to the budget and as part of the publicity documents for the budget. So the what's in the publicity, a lot of it is beyond the four-year forward estimates period and so at the moment it's, if you like, not real money, whereas um, what's in the forward estimates um, and is actually – Uh, in officially in the budget is substantially less.
0: So it does seem like there's new mega projects in the budget. But I suppose when we're looking around at the moment, it seems like the costs of the projects already on the way are pretty eye-watering. Why are these projects so expensive at the moment? And is Australia particularly bad in this respect? Are taxpayers getting a good deal for these projects or are we getting ripped off a bit?
1: So it is difficult to know how much infrastructure should cost and whether we're paying above the odds and to give a definitive answer on that. But what, what we do know is that there is a whole lot of things that governments could be doing to make sure that they get uh, good quality infrastructure at the lowest long-term cost to taxpayers, but they're not doing it. So here are a few of those things. Firstly, they could be looking at countries overseas that are similar to us but can build more cheaply. And for example, we've found that Australia is about 26% higher than Canada, 29% higher than Japan and more than three times the cost of Spain when it comes to building urban passenger rail. So we could go and find out what they are doing to get good quality infrastructure more cheaply. We could be tracking our own costs through time so that we can build up a picture of of what we expect things to cost um, looking at across the country, but we don't do that either. At the moment, there's an awful lot of projects in the pipeline, a lot of projects being built. The pandemic didn't make a dent in that really. And so There's a lot of competition for resources, for workers, for machinery, for materials. And if you do do that, particularly when your borders are shut, actually, the competition for resources just means that the cost goes up. So what we could be doing would be to schedule projects better, more coordination across states. We know that because in the period immediately after the mining investment boom, there was a flattening out of the costs for road and rail construction, but it picked up again afterwards. So there is an opportunity to think strategically about when you do projects, that is a way of keeping the costs under control. And finally, I think another thing we could be doing is thinking about the requirements for local content. I think governments often reach for these because they think it will create jobs if they mandate or recommend using local materials. In reality, the best way to think about this as part of a long-term trend since the 1980s where we've had a competition policy agenda and a big part of that has been stopping practices of propping up particular firms and particular industries with rules like this. And by doing that, we have become a wealthier country. And I think in the particular case of infrastructure construction, we, we would have the opportunity to get these projects built more cheaply.
0: So I'll direct this next one to you, Owen. It seems like mega project costs are sort of relatively high, at least compared to some of the rest of the world. Is this maybe just because we have good like safety and environmental standards and we're giving lots of additional upgrades to secondary infrastructure, so things like bicycle paths and by minimising impacts to homes? Do you, do you think we should be moving away from this and taking instead the most economical path and just accepting the sacrifice of you know homes and urban green space in order to provide the most cost-effective delivery?
2: Well, it's absolutely true that as Australia has become richer, Governments have become more attentive to local concerns with, as you say, noise barriers, bike paths, landscaping, increased compensation for compulsorily acquired homes, and contemporary norms also rightly focus on more on environmental considerations for soil disposal, stormwater, and flood risk. Also safety concerns like safety barriers on highways. So all of those things are certainly in keeping with community standards. It's probably a good thing to be paying a bit more for, for those things. Though it is sometimes hard to quantify, they're clearly things that the community is willing to pay for. So we're not saying to take away the quality standards. What we're really talking about is for a given quality standard that we decide on, how do we get the infrastructure at the cheapest long-term cost.
0: So are there any sort of reasons in particular, I know Marion's mentioned a few that are, that might be pushing up costs, but any other reasons why costs might be blowing out or costing a bit more than they could be and really achieving that lowest long-term cost to taxpayers?
2: Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of the things that's really important is that governments keep rushing these projects out the door. And often we're seeing that they're not preparing as well as they could. They could be doing a lot more discovery scoping the projects better and understanding the risks rather than rushing to market and part of the reason that happens is the political considerations. Governments are keen to get a project up and started within a term of government partly because you can't really tie the hands of future governments unless you've got things underway. One example that we looked at was the Westgate Tunnel in Victoria. Six months after winning office in 2014, the Victorian government signed an agreement with Transurban to build the Westgate Tunnel. It's since emerged that the soil at the site of the new road is contaminated with dangerous chemicals and the project is now locked in a, a bit of a dispute over who will end up paying, whether it'll be the government or the contractors. And that's, that's yet to be Resolved, but the project is currently two years behind schedule. Often the problems are those sort of underground issues, things like electrical cables and soil contamination. What we're concluding is that in in a lot of cases, it could have been a lot cheaper to invest a bit more time at the start to work out some of these things, to do the discovery work and publish that work for the benefit of all the bidders on on the project do that before the contracts get signed rather than afterwards and that will decrease the uncertainty involved in the the costs for all parties.
0: Yeah, so I guess one of the points you seem to be talking about is the fact that we've got governments on one hand and we've also got contractors and private construction firms who are building these projects really. When it comes to these private construction firms, how important is sort of competition between the firms and is there enough of these firms competing for government works to really get the best price?
1: Competition is fundamental. The reason it's so important is it keeps costs down and it encourages innovation. So what we find in engineering construction is that there are a lot of firms that can do this work at the smaller end. And smaller is not actually small, So, but up to half a billion dollars. Um, there are quite a few firms who can take on contracts of that size. But once you get to, to big contracts like the billion-dollar-plus contracts then there are not many. In fact, there's only three. And that's been the case for a long time. There's been sort of typically two or three of these firms that can take on really big contracts, which are known as as tier one firms. I guess what's changed in the world then is that um, it used to be the case that uh, we didn't have as many mega projects and therefore we didn't have as as many very big contracts. Um, A mega project is typically broken into somewhere between two and five contracts. Um, more for the bigger ones. But the contract size has been increasing. And, and what that means is that there's, uh, there are more and more really big contracts, $3 billion or even more, even in some cases more than $5 billion contracts. And so you've got three firms competing. And when they get really big, the three tier one firms don't want to bid for them alone themselves. They want to form joint ventures with another of the tier ones. So competition thins out at that big end and and the big end has grown. In the end, what this means is um, there's a couple of things that you can do about to try to maximise your chance of having a competitive environment. One is breaking up contracts into smaller works packages, and governments do do this to some extent. And then you've got more companies that are in a position to bid for the works. And the other thing that governments can do is make sure that firms can come in from overseas and compete in the market and win work.
0: So I might pass this one over to you, Owen. In terms of those international firms Marion's just mentioned, do we have many international firms building in Australia at the moment? And sort of are there many that could come over here and maybe help drive down the cost of infrastructure at all? What are, what are your thoughts on this idea?
2: So there have been quite a few international entrants over the years. Some have worked here repeatedly and um, won contracts over a number of years. It's happened a bit more so in New South Wales than in other states. It's hard to know exactly why, whether it's policy-driven or or just the nature of the market there. But one thing is it definitely wouldn't hurt to at least have the ability for international firms to come in. It would probably increase competition if you're getting more bids on On a project on a contract you're more likely to get a competitive price also it's quite possible that some international firms will have innovation or different ways of doing things which australian firms are yet to adopt it's not that we're begging international firms to 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 come here but we want to make sure the barriers to them coming in are low that there is that potential competition so one of the things we've talked about is making sure that we're not giving too much weight to local experience, if there's firms that have done similar jobs overseas, and those skills would be that ability would be transferable, we should be making sure that they've got a, fa- a fair shot at at, uh, at winning contracts.
0: So, Marion, a bit earlier, you mentioned that contracts on mega projects are getting a bit bigger as the projects themselves are really taking off in size. Since these contracts have sort of changed in size a fair bit, have governments changed their procurement practices at all and how they sort of procure these massive projects and massive contracts?
1: Not as much as you might think. So governments have to go through a series of steps after they've decided they're going to build a project, but they have yet to have someone lined up to do that. So one of the things that they need to do is uh, divide up a mega project into one or more contracts and bundles of work, if you like. And there's very little official guidance in in the guidance that governments um, have about how they're going to do various aspects of the procurement process there is very little on what what is a what are the principles that should guide your bundling how you choose your contract type has got more guidance when i say contract type what i mean is whether you're going to let the project under a public private partnership or ppp whether it'll be under an alliance contract which is more of a pain share gain share collaborative sort of contract or whether through a traditional design and construct kind of contract. It's a bit of a matter of horses for courses. It depends how well understood the risks are of projects as to what will be best suited. Um, They do have different strengths. From what we could find in our research, the choice of what contract type seems to be quite industry-driven and it also seems to be quite subject to fashion. We were interested to see that there's a lot of call in the industry at the moment for more collaborative contracts and more collaborative elements of contracts. And indeed, we found that in the last seven years, there'd been a move away from alliances, the more collaborative form of contract, compared to the seven years before that. What governments should be doing with both the bundling and the choice of contract type is doing it systematically.
0: Yeah, so I guess guess on that idea of contract type and risks particularly assigned to different parties, every time a problem comes up on these projects, it seems that governments are out in the media staring down construction firms. But then after a few weeks or a few months or even a few years, it ends up that they foot the bill of the project and the taxpayers fork out more money to fix the problems. Is there any particular reason why this keeps happening? Are there not times when the construction firms really should be paying for these issues?
1: So Often what is going on in in these types of disputes is that there hasn't been uh, enough discovery of the site conditions before heading into the construction phase. An example that has had a lot of uh, public interest has been Sydney Light Rail. The project took just 24 months from the initial promise to signing a preferred tenderer, even skipping gateway reviews to meet the schedule. And through the course of construction, the cost of digging up and replacing power lines on George Street in Sydney turned out to be unexpectedly high. What happened was um, in 2018, the consortium building it filed a lawsuit in the New South Wales Supreme Court alleging that the government had engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct when providing information about the location of utilities. That dispute settled out of court and we know more about it than we do about a lot of these projects. But So often we don't really know what's going on. Governments can be very secretive about why extra money was paid, um, how the amount was calculated and the terms of the contracts. What is going on here is, you know, this tension about where um, who bears particular risks in the contract? Certainly, industry is making noises about wanting to push a lot of risks back to government now, they don't want to take on as much risk, and there's a lot of work around, so they're kind of in a stronger position to to bargain on this. But it is one of the reasons that collaboration is being talked about so much in the industry at the moment. But risks shouldn't all sit with contractors. They should really sit with the party who can manage the risk at the at the lowest cost. And, and that will depend for different types of risks. There's, there's risks um, in the construction phase of things um, costing more or taking longer. There's risks, as we said, about the site conditions and the location of utilities. There's also risks that the, um, the government might. Change law or regulation in such a way that affects the cost. So many different risks, and and it's a it's a very complex process. But uh, one thing that one risk that the government can never transfer is political risk. So they shouldn't pay to do so. In the end, it is their head on the chopping block. If a contractor walks off the job and leaves, uh, leaves a half-built project. And uh, there is also, of course, political pressure to quell disputes. And I think that is part of what we've seen with some of the examples that you're referring to, Lockie, about you know when there's a dispute and then the government ends up footing the bill.
0: So, Marion, I guess with that, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to finish with one last question to you. So, imagine that everything you've recommended in this report happens and gets done and the Grattan plan for major transport projects gets adopted. Could you just describe to me how Australia's big build would be a bit different and how it might be a bit better from what's going on today?
1: Yeah. So instead of saying, give me a list of mega projects I can build, we, we'd turn the process upside down. we we first of all say, well, what are the actual problems that we're trying to solve? Are we worried about congestion in this particular part of Sydney? Are we worried about connection between this regional centre and this other regional centre? Are we worrying that this port is running out of capacity? Are we worried about unemployment? All of these things can be resolved or improved in quite a number of different ways. So if you're worrying about congestion between the east and west of Melbourne uh, on roads in peak periods, well, you could do uh, a new urban freeway, but you could also do a variety of small upgrades, you could improve public transport connections, or you could introduce road user charging, congestion pricing. You need to start with what you're trying to achieve. Just spraying large amounts of money around uh, doesn't really help you. And even if you do decide you want a freeway, then you need to assess it. Is it worth spending our shared resources on a, a tunneled freeway or widening what we've already got? In the end, when I think about what is what would it be like, what would be different, I think we would have different projects being built. Probably some the same, but some different. I think we'd spend longer in the planning. And I think the result of that would be that it would be less disputed and hopefully better value for money.
0: Well, with that, I just want to say thank you to Marion and to you as well, on for your insights and expertise today. And also thanks to you, our listeners. If any of you would like to read the new report on transport projects or indeed look at any of Marion and the transport team's reports and articles... They're all on our website at grattan.edu.au. So you can stay up to date with all of Grattan’s news and events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook at the Grattan Institute as well. And if you’ve found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes or Spotify and leaving us a rating or review. And with that, thanks for listening.